0: Welcome to Role Models for Change, a series of conversations with social entrepreneurs and other innovators on the front lines of some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm James Nardella, a principal at the Skoll Foundation. Today we're talking with Safina Hussain. Growing up in Delhi, India, Safina found refuge and opportunity in education. She went on to study in the UK before building a career in community-based development. She's the founder and executive director of Educate Girls, an organization that enrolls and retains out-of-school girls and increases learning for both boys and girls. They've reached two and a half million children in India. They're on a path to reach four and a half million children in the next five years. So I want to start with what drives you.
1: I think what really drives me is In my own life, my education has been such a a tool that has kind of turned my life around. And also growing up in so much patriarchy, like you experience the inequity every single day, right? Uh, It's not an abstract notion you're, you're working for. It's your daily reality. So every day you try and change that a little bit at a time.
0: Can you talk about what it was like to grow up that way?
1: Just immensely, immensely difficult. At every point, you're told what you can't do. You can't step out of the house. You can't wear these kind of clothes. Girls don't sit like that. Girls don't talk like that. Girls don't behave like that. A good girl would never do this, and a good girl would never do that. And to constantly grow up constrained by the template of what a girl needs to be is just such a burden. And even to this day, you suffer from it because you do something and you're constantly in your mind trying to evaluate yourself, whether you were a good girl or not. Hmm. And you kind of almost become a slave to it. I mean, it's like brainwashing
0: from day one. Even though you went to London School of Economics, that's that's not where you started. What were the circumstances?
1: A large, chunk of my childhood was growing up exposed to a lot of the urban poverty. So we were poor, we lived in one room, you can't use the term apartment for it because it's a room, then there's a corridor, and then there's a bathroom and toilet. So I remember one of the janta flats that I grew up and didn't even have a kitchen. And we simply cooked in that corridor on those kerosene stoves. And you can't do a lot of extensive meals on that. So <laughs> I remember my entire childhood, most of the hot meals were either khichdi, which means rice and lentils cooked together, or they would be dal rice, which is rice and lentils cooked separately. And, uh, and that was pretty much the extent of, I would say, 80% of our meals.
0: You know, what you're doing now is focused on meeting the needs of girls in the developing world and specifically in the Indian context so let's talk about this passion you have for girls education
1: it's a passion that comes from my own journey it's very linked to who i am to where i saw you know opportunity come my way was only through education and you know there's so many problems with gender right we have abuse we have violence we have so many things we have to deal with and I can't solve for all of those issues. But I know that just in my life, like the way I had my education, it helped me defeat all the other pieces and stand up on my own two feet. I want the same for for the girls. I want to be able to give them this important weapon in their hands that would allow them to um, conquer all the other pieces that they are up against.
0: So let's talk about what girls in India are up against.
1: God. You know, what are they not up against? Um, You know, recently in a village in Ajmer, um, we were just all sitting around, and one girl, her father named her Naraz. And Naraz means angry. And that's because the entire family was so angry when a daughter was born. She knows from the day she was born as to how unwanted she was how upset and angry it made everybody that it wasn't a son so apart from just the violence of the small act of naming them something uh, which is so despicable to child marriage to the burden of the household work that comes to them the looking after the cattle cleaning cooking the last ones to go to bed the first ones to get up and i said to them i said why doesn't your brother your father share the workload You know, but it's a girl's job. And then to be married off, as soon as you hit your, you know, you get your period, you hit puberty, oh, she's a parayadhan. That means she just has to go to another house. So this feeling of constantly feeling like a liability, that's what they're really up against. I was always less than a son.
0: So let's talk about what happens when girls who have overcome those barriers and begun to reap the benefits of education?
1: My God, what doesn't happen? (laughs) Um, You know, every year that they're staying in school, they're getting married later. That, in any case, is adding to her life expectancy. Because we know that if girls get married early, they have children early, they're much more likely to die in childbirth. If she's educated, she'll be 40% more likely to immunize her children. Domestic violence rates go down because girls will stand up for themselves uh, when they have an education. But more than anything that inspires me the most is the fact that if she's educated, then her children are 500 times more likely to be educated. So you immediately break the cycle of illiteracy for generations to come just by educating her. And I feel that is such a powerful piece
0: Can you explain the actual work that you're doing?
1: Um, With Educate Girls, first and foremost, you know, we work in some of the worst geographies for girls' education. So we go to the government and we say, you tell us which is the area that you're having the hardest time uh, bringing girls into the school or, you know, delivering for them. Um, That means that we end up working in some of the hardest to reach rural, remote and tribal areas. As the first step, we go door to door and we find every single girl who's out of school. Last year alone, we knocked on more than 2.1 million households to find every single girl that was not going to school. This is a massive exercise, but we're committed to finding that every last child. Then we start our process of community mobilization, really convincing the communities to bring these girls back into school. This can be anything from individual counseling, village meetings, neighborhood meetings, et cetera. After the girls are enrolled, um, then we work on making sure the school is girl-friendly, making sure it has a toilet, separate toilet for girls, water, etc. And our educated volunteer is coming inside the government school system and teaching. They teach three times a week, English and math, to make sure that the learning outcomes of all the children are moving, because we do have a huge quality issue as well. So we wanna make sure that the out-of-school girls are found, they're in school, then staying in school, and they're learning. And that's how we kind of measure our performance.
0: What do you think the end result will be of all of this work in all of these communities? These social benefits cascade well beyond the academics, right? And yet, we often narrowly focus on education as a tool for learning rather than a tool for raising up a productive and healthy citizenry that can then participate in their community in ways that lead to real change. Mm -hmm. And that those two things are not mutually exclusive. No,
1: true. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But, you know, I push back a little bit to say that, you know, a lot of times in the development sector, we can hide poor performance under that kind of a vocabulary.
0: Poor academic performance can be hidden behind, oh, but we're making good citizens.
1: So I always try and guard against that because in any case, there's a lot of data that says if the child is coming to school, even if the school is not delivering on quality, that child is still gaining a lot in terms of life skills. But what I'm saying is, hold me accountable. You know, funders give money on the table. Don't let me hide behind talking about, you know, Oh, poor children need this, that, and the other, and where I'm not delivering on the actual quality that I owe them. Because that is what will really pull them out of poverty. Like I said, if she's educated, then her children are 500 times more likely to be educated. So you immediately break the cycle of illiteracy for generations to come.
0: So if India were to become the world that you want it to become, girls and women, or for society as a whole, what would it look like?
1: That India would be an India that would see its sons and daughters as equal. It it wouldn't have this lust for sons and this such crazy disregard for its daughters. Um, And the day that happens, all these struggles would just sort of melt away.
0: Do you think it's possible, honestly?
1: I hope so. <laughs> but honestly, I think I think it will take time and it's our job to accelerate that process. You know, do I want to wait 50 years till that last tribal girl is in school? No. I want to make sure I can I can do it in the next 10 years. And if you have a model where, you know, th- tens of thousands of people will stand up with you to do it, yes, it's absolutely possible.